step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Discover the safest and easiest ways to protect your assets, your family, and your future on the Nestman Exchange. This is what we've been doing every day at the Nestman Group for more than 30 years. Hello, everyone. This is Paul Castillo, the Asset Protection Concierge for the Nestman Group, and I'd like to welcome you all to the April edition of the Nestman Exchange. As usual, I have Mark with me on the line. Um, as you all know, he's the founder of the Nestman Group. And I'm sure most of you know, but for those of you that are newer to the Nestman Group, Mark and I work very closely together. And over the last 25 to 30 years, Mark has helped over 15,000 customers and clients su successfully protect their assets and their privacy, particularly through our private wealth program. Mark, first off, welcome to the show. Paul, it's good to be here. Thank you. Great. Now, Mark, the other day I was speaking with one of our clients, and she told me a very tragic story about how she lost a good chunk of her assets due to civil forfeiture. Um, and her situation was one where she had put some money aside, and then just like that, it was taken from her. She wasn't charged with the crime, and she did nothing wrong. And uh, the, the sad thing is, is that by the time she called us, it was too late. So this inspired me to uh, reach out to you, as you know, and uh, talk about uh, you know focusing on civil forfeiture this month. Um, and also, we're going to be launching a new report soon, so what better time than to address this topic, right? You know, Paul, I think that's a great idea. You know, I think a lot of our clients will want to take advantage of this information. You know, civil forfeiture is a textbook example of government run amok. And I actually first learned about it uh, more than 25 years ago because I was personally a victim of it. I came face-to-face -face with laws that allow police to seize your property without accusing you of any crime. I know that sounds incredible for something happening in the United States, but it is possible and it happens every day. Now, the legal theory in a civil forfeiture is, is that your property is somehow guilty of a crime, and then the government accuses the property, not you, of that crime. So what that means, basically, is that if a crime occurs on your property, you could lose it. Now, what's worse is because this is a civil procedure, none of the protections that would apply to a criminal defendant apply. Essentially, your property is presumed guilty. If you can't prove that it's innocent, you can lose it. And guess what? A lot of times the laws don't even allow you to make a claim that the property is innocent. In theory, someone could walk into the Trump Tower, light up a marijuana joint, and the authorities could seize the entire property. Of course, this will never happen because Trump is so well politically connected. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? I mean, I feel like any legal theory that could technically lead to that type of scenario simply shouldn't be taken as a legitimate legal doctrine at all. I mean, isn't that a gross uh, gross violation of our Fourth Amendment rights? 
Paul, I would completely agree. And the government won't use civil forfeiture as a practical matter to target those who are politically connected, but they will go out of their way to target vulnerable groups just like our client that you mentioned. Let me give you an example of how it really works. Let's say that you own a home and your teenage son is selling marijuana to his friends outside on the front porch of the house or in the street in front or whatever. Because that's a crime, the police can seize the entire house even though you did nothing wrong and knew nothing about the illegal activity of your teenage son. They don't even need to accuse him of a crime. This sort of thing happens every day. Now, one really heart-wrenching story I read about came out of Philadelphia, which has actually organized a, what they call a public nuisance task force, essentially a forfeiture squad, to pursue these kinds of cases. Interesting. A whole task force designed just for civil forfeiture cases. You got it. Now, the name of the forfeiture victim is a man named Chris Sarovellis. Chris never was arrested or convicted for anything. But that didn't stop the city of Philadelphia from trying to confiscate his house. Here's what happened. Back in March 2014, Chris's 22-year-old son was caught selling $40 worth of marijuana. Actually, it was drugs. I'm not sure what drug it was. To an undercover agent. The cops raided the family home with guns drawn. One of them pointed at the head of the family dog and found small amounts of drugs in the son's bedroom. Now, the boy had no previous arrests. So court ordered him to attend rehab. Then, while Chris was driving his son to his first rehab appointment, his wife called on his cell phone. She told him the family had been evicted from the home and the police had seized it. They actually had to sleep on their neighbor's couch that night. Chris eventually got the home back after he, along with some other completely innocent homeowners, filed a lawsuit against the city. But not everyone is so lucky. Yeah, that's incredible, Mark. It's hard to believe that here in the the so-called land of the free that this could even happen. How big of a problem is this nationally? You know, it's hard to say because most states don't keep, most states don't keep very good records on these. But the federal government does keep somewhat better records of its own civil forfeiture program, mainly from the Treasury and from the Department of Justice. And records indicate that every year, billions of dollars of assets are confiscated from owners who, in many cases, are never charged with any crime. Now, believe it or not, the U.S. Treasury has even announced it has the power to confiscate any financial instrument under its civil forfeiture authority. So what that means is that any time the government declares a state of emergency, such as the one that was declared after 9-11 and is still in place, the Treasury says it has this authority. In other words, the Treasury says it has the power today to confiscate any document or paper that has intrinsic value or embodies monetary value. And that's pretty much everything. Stocks, bonds, bank accounts, mortgages, cash, just to name a few. Now, in case you thought the Treasury forgot about gold and silver and other precious metals, it hasn't. It says it can confiscate those as well. Yeah, that's amazing, Mark. Um, clearly, it's a huge problem, I think bigger than many of our clients might realize but what is it about civil forfeiture that makes it so attractive to the police and our government? Well, put yourself in the in the in the shoes of a of a prosecutor, and you know, and and understand what his motivations are. First of all, the proceeds from seized properties are funneled back to the local prosecutor and to the police who made the seizure. And secondly, criminal cases must be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. That's what our Eighth Amendment to our Constitution says. But in most civil forfeiture cases, prosecutors only need to demonstrate their property and not the owner 
was more likely than not involved in the perpetration of a crime. So in many cases, all police need to do is to file what's called an affidavit of probable cause with the court. This affidavit is often sufficient to allow seizure if the owner doesn't contest it. Now, if you, want, if you do want to contest a civil forfeiture, that's when it gets really bizarre. The rules of civil forfeiture stem from something called admiralty law. That's the result of the historical basis of civil forfeiture. Back in 1789, the very first Congress enacted a series of statutes authorizing the forfeiture of ships and their cargoes for non-payment of customs duty and for piracy. Later, the law was amended to allow for forfeiture for, of ships for involvement in the slave trade when the slave trade became illegal. Now, the admiralty rules are very different from the normal rules of civil procedure. So if you experience a civil forfeiture and, and call your family lawyer, he's not, he or she isn't going to know the first thing to, to do to defend against one. You need to hire a lawyer with very specialized expertise in civil forfeiture cases, and they're very rare and they're very expensive. The least expensive retainer I've seen for this is around ten thousand, uh, and twenty thousand or more is much more typical. If you want to get someone really good, you're going to have to fork out twenty, twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars. So what this means is that the vast majority of civil forfeitures are never contested. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Uh, it's a very expensive lawyer bill, and most people probably don't have that kind of cash lying around. In the example that we've discussed, you mentioned that the owners were never charged with the crime. But certainly, the vast majority of civil forfeiture cases must involve the arrest of the owner for some crime, don't they, Mark? You know, I've looked at a couple, I've looked at a couple studies, and one study it said 80% of, um, of people who experienced civil forfeitures were never charged with the crime. An older study back in 91, it was even higher, it was 90%. So in the vast majority of cases, uh, no, there's never any accusation of any crime by the, you know, by the uh, owner of the property. Unbelievable. So it would seem that there's a real danger of civil forfeiture leading to some sort or to sort of a bounty hunter mentality among police. Is that a problem? Paul, it's a huge problem because police generally get to keep the proceeds of what they seize. So what this has done is inevitably it's led to the proliferation of forfeiture squads like the Philadelphia Public Nuisance Unit I discussed earlier. Civil forfeitures are actually a formal budget item for many cities. Police are given a target to hit, and if they don't bring in that much revenue for civil forfeiture, they experience a budget cut. So what does this do? We're giving cops an incentive to pursue confiscations of property from innocent people instead of an incentive to protect the public. I can't think of a better way to destroy trust in police. Yeah. Now, how is it possible that the government can actually seize property from entirely innocent owners? You know, this has been litigated time and time again uh, by the, and going up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has repeatedly approved the practice. And this started, there was a case back in, I think, 18, in the early 19th century, 1812, 1815, something like that, where the Supreme Court authorized the confiscation of his ship due to the actions of his captain, where the owner was completely innocent of any wrongdoing and was never charged with the crime. Then in 1878, the Supreme Court upheld the confiscation, again from a completely innocent owner, of real and personal property used for a distillery because there were violations of federal tax laws by the company renting the property. A century later, in 1996, the Supreme Court upheld a Michigan law authorizing confiscation of a wife's car used for illegal purposes by her husband without her knowledge. 
I can imagine. I mean, the wife must have been quite upset. Other than real estate, what types of assets are most vulnerable to civil forfeiture, Mark? Uh, I would say vehicles and physical currency are probably the asset classes most subject to civil forfeiture. Vehicles like the one at issue in the 1996 Supreme Court case are an asset class that's very popular to seize. In this case, the husband decided one day that he was going to go out and hire a prostitute. So he snuck out of the house at night, climbed in his wife's car, and went into town to find some comfort for the evening, and um, was arrested in a police sting. Now, the police seized the vehicle, uh, which they can under Michigan law, where, where this happened. The wife appealed and said, you can't do this to me. And the Supreme Court said, well, yes, we can. Now, cash is another situation that's forfeited quite a bit. And the courts have upheld cash seizures if the currency contains any drug residues. And that's deemed to be a probable cause of involvement in the drug trade. The problem is something like 96% of cash contains drug residues. Right. And then, of course, and I'm not talking just in Hollywood, but we've all heard of the stories where the dirty cops will actually put some of those things into their own pocket, right? Well, this happens over and over again. And I don't want to paint all cops with a, a, a paintbrush saying they're, they're naughty. Yeah, certainly not. Certainly but, we not. Do, but we do see times where there are crooked cops, um, and it's just a, a real temptation to, to grab some of the assets because of procedural safeguards. And this is especially true at the local, county, and state level the procedural safeguards are so small. So we see time and time again where the cops or the prosecutors just, you know, help themselves to cash or other assets and it disappears from the till. And here's some examples that I've collected from my files. In Pennsylvania, a prosecutor stole $70,000 in forfeited gambling proceeds for his own use. In Oklahoma, a prosecutor lived rent-free in a forfeited home for five years. Also in Oklahoma, another prosecutor stole $5,000 in forfeited funds to help make student loan payments. And then in Michigan, uh, a police chief and a five detectives stole $50,000 in drug forfeiture money to pay, for pro to pay for prostitutes, alcohol, and marijuana, and to buy a tanning salon. Wow. Look, I, could, I could go on, but I'm sure you and your listeners can understand that with the crazy incentives built into civil forfeiture procedures, along with almost non-existing auditing in most states, abuses are inevitable. Yeah, and Mark, not to get off base here, but in any of those cases, were the uh, were the perpetrators found accountable? You know, were the, what happened? Well, that's how and that's the only way that we learn about these cases because they were caught and they were punished. And in some cases, some of these people were still in jail. Yeah. Okay. Mark, how likely do you think it is that we're going to see any meaningful reforms to these laws? You know, the civil forfeiture laws say, over the next four years during Trump's administration? You know, you would think you might see some significant uh, reform because the Republicans tend to be the uh, people who um, want to protect property rights, right? But unfortunately, this doesn't seem very likely, and that's because of who our attorney general is. Uh, Jeff Sessions, uh, who is the Trump pick for attorney general and has now been confirmed, is a huge proponent of civil forfeiture. And here's what he said about civil forfeiture and his victims. According to Sessions, 95% uh, of forfeiture cases involve criminals who've done nothing in their lives but sell dope. Of course, that's total BS, as the whole point of civil forfeiture is the government can take property without convicting or even charging anyone with a crime, as the, you know, as, as the people we've talked about have experienced. Sessions also says that in seizing property suspected of involvement of a crime, the government should not have a burden of proof higher than in a normal civil case. 
Again, this completely evades the point because in civil forfeiture, there is no judicial process. The police simply file an affidavit of probable cause, and the property owner has no way to defend himself unless he hires a twenty dollars or $30,000 attorney and the police get a default judgment. With such as in place as a chief law enforcement in our entire country, civil forfeiture reform simply isn't going to happen. Yeah, I, I would have to agree. Um, we've also had clients who have lost property through the eminent domain process. So for those of the, for those of our listeners that don't understand the difference between the two, what would you say is the main difference between civil forfeiture and eminent domain? Well, there's actually a clause in the U.S. Constitution that allows the government to seize uh, property for public use. Um, and basically, this has been interpreted by the various states and even the Supreme Court as permitting uh, eminent domain for economic redevelopment. Now, like civil forfeiture, eminent domain also works in the government favor, government's favor at the expense of your right to property. Specifically, it allows them to increase tax revenues and appease politically connected private interest using your property. The biggest difference is that in eminent domain, you as a property owner will eventually get paid something. Now, you might not get as much as, as you want, but you will get something. Still, there are clear abuses in eminent domain cases as well, and it's fair to say that under the eminent domain laws, your property is safe only until politicians decide someone else needs it more than you do. Yeah. I mean, I personally, um, not not too far from where I live, I had a meeting with, uh, or I had the opportunity to meet um, some local residents recently that are actually losing a good chunk of their property to, to eminent domain because the county wants to expand one of the highways or something like that. And they're very distraught because the property's been in their family for many generations and their hands are tied. I mean, they have no choice in the matter whatsoever. Uh, Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So here's the question that I'm sure all of our clients or our listeners are asking. What can one do to protect themselves from these types of threats? Paul, like so many other aspects of, uh, of American life, the best strategy is to move your assets outside the United States. Now, it's not completely fail-safe because other countries will enforce U.S. civil forfeiture orders. But here's the key. They won't enforce them unless there's a criminal proceeding underway or completed. So as we said earlier, in 80 to 90% of the cases, this isn't done. So simply by moving your assets outside the U.S., that's enough to defeat you know, 80 to 90% of civil forfeiture cases. Um, now, this is a really key aspect of things. Um, in some cases, there has to be a, a guilty plea or verdict before they will allow assets to be recovered. So what this means is that the prosecutors have to proceed under due process of law. Now, some other strategies for real estate. Keep in mind, you can be held accountable for the activities of your children, grandchildren, and so on. So if they violate the law, you can lose your property. One practical strategy I've seen is to keep your property heavily mortgaged. I've seen cases now and then where if there is a private mortgage, the government will actually seize the property and not pay the mortgage holder. But in general, if you have a traditional mortgage with a big bank, they're not going to try to grab onto that. The next vulnerable category is cash. If you hold a lot of cash, try to withdraw it from the bank in the form of bank-wrapped notes and keep the withdrawal slip. So if you have a paper trail, you'll have a clear paper trail to a specific account not linked to drugs, even if the currency has drug residues on it, as most cash does. Although if it's bank-wrapped and these are new bills, the drug residues should be minimal, if not non-existent. Okay, so you talked a moment ago about... Um, about having a mortgage, you know, keeping your property have heavily 
leveraged or mortgaged. And I know that I know that equity stripping is a technique or a strategy that you have helped some of our private wealth clients with, depending on their personal situation. Is this a scenario where that would make sense? Well, possibly, but don't forget, this is a private mortgage, and with a private mortgage, the government looks, it, it certainly might deter a prosecutor who doesn't know what he's doing, but if they really get into it and see that it's a, a private mortgage and that you're the ultimate lender, then it's not, then it's going to fall out like a house of cards, unfortunately. Okay. Okay. Um, so the bottom line is, just like with asset protection in general, the concept is that you move your money overseas and that alone will make it that much harder for the government or anybody for that matter to get to your assets. So essentially, they're going to move you to the back of the line and find a better target. Is that right? Yeah, 90% of the time, that's correct, because these, these countries are not going to enforce a civil forfeiture unless you've actually been accused of a crime and there's a criminal proceeding underway. Okay. Mark, that's great information to have. Um, we're going to change gears here. For this episode, you know, we usually use uh, some case studies. And for this episode, we've got a very interesting case, which is you, Mark. Um, I believe that you had a situation many years ago. And uh, would you mind sharing that with our listeners today? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, back in the 80s and early 90s, I owned a rental property in Florida that my real estate agent had leased to some young people. They fell behind Did you on say the Florida? rent. In Florida, that's correct. Okay, okay. Um, now, they fell behind on the rent, and I got them kicked out. Now, when I got inside the house to see the conditions there, I was completely horrified. The place was, was totally trashed. One of the things I noticed right away was hundreds of tiny glass vials. I had no idea what they were at the time, but I later learned they were used to hold crack cocaine. Now, the house was such a mess, I decided to sell it as is. I contacted another agent. I was really angry at the first one for running the place out to deadbeats, and we put up a sign a day or two later. Now, just the next day after I put the sign up, there was a knock on the door. There were two police officers there in uniform, a man and a woman, and they asked if the house was for sale, and I confirmed that it was. They asked to look around the house, which, of course, I was happy to do since I thought that perhaps there were a couple of potential buyers. I was still in the middle of the cleanup, and a pile of these glass vials was swept into a corner. One of the cops, I think it was the, the man, picked up a vial and asked me if I knew what it was. I told him I had no idea, but I just kicked out the tenants and was cleaning up their mess. Uh, the mail officer told me the, that he thought the vial was for crack, co crack cocaine. He then took a small bottle out of his pocket and poured a few drops into the vial. The liquid turned purple, as I recall. He told me the vial had just tested positive for the presence of cocaine. Next, he told me the city of Coconut Creek, Florida, would be pursuing what they called a civil forfeiture claim against the house. Again, bear in mind, I had never heard this term before. I asked if they were going to arrest me. He said no, because they had no evidence that I had personally broken any law. However, he told me that under the civil forfeiture law, if any illegal activity took place on my property, it could be confiscated. He gave me a piece of paper to sign, which I acknowledge that my home is subject to confiscation. Now, I next asked the cop if it made any difference that I didn't know of the legal activity in the house. And he said, no, that didn't make any difference. Ignorance was no excuse. It was my responsibility to monitor at all times the activities of my tenants and to make sure they weren't doing anything illegal. And I had failed to do so. And I had failed to do so. Wow. Now, needless to say, Paul, I was pretty freaked out. 
Um, I hired a lawyer who spoke to the city attorney, and it turned out the city never bothered to file a civil forfeiture claim in court. I think that was because the value of the house had suffered so much from the activities of my tenants. There really was quite a bit of damage. <clears throat> so at this point, I actually owed more money on the mortgage than the house was worth. And since there wasn't any equity in the house, they decided not to pursue it. But the more I learned about this crazy procedure called civil forfeiture, the matter I got. I think it's safe to say my career path after that encounter was to publicize this pernicious legal procedure and work to reform it any way that I could. And I've certainly done that over the last quarter century. Yeah, you certainly have. And just to add a comment here, um, you, you shared the story of one Chris Survelis earlier in the call. And then you just said something that I really want the listeners to pick up on. You said that in your particular case, you owed more money on the mortgage than the house was worth. Now, what what really comes to mind, um, a couple years ago, I actually, are you familiar with the Blaze, Mark? They're, they're yes. a news organization? Of okay. course. So a couple years ago, I was listening to one of their shows. It was on their Wednesday edition. And the name of the call was Seized. And in this show, they were talking about civil forfeiture, and it was they were talking about an unbelievable amount of people that had lost tens of thousands of dollars in the process. But the story that really struck me was about a gentleman by the name of Russ Caswell. And you, you probably know this story. I believe we've talked about it. But Russ was a 72-year-old business owner from Massachusetts, and he, he ran and he, he owned and operated a hotel which he had actually uh, inherited from his father. His father built this hotel with his own hands back in 1955. Now, the hotel uh, you know, has, had since been paid for. Uh, Russ and his wife personally operated the hotel, and they worked their entire lives to, to pay it off. And the hotel is worth about $2 million at this point. One day out of the blue, he gets a letter from the government, and the government's declaring that they own his entire business. Now, this case drag, drug on for a number of years. I believe it was between 2009 to 2012 or somewhere in there. And so what had happened is, is the DEA seized his property, claiming that illegal activity had taken place at his establishment. And their case was based on 15 arrests over a period of 14 years. Now, over that period of time, Russ had had over 200,000 rooms rented out. So I'll let you guys all do the math on that. 15 arrests, over 200 rooms rented out. Um, and Russ was never charged with the crime. So he was really confused, to say the least, and he decided to fight it. But then early in the case, his attorney asked the DEA agent, I believe it was somewhere in the discovery process, the attorney asked the DEA agent to explain how they selected properties to seize. And the agent revealed that their process included seeking out properties that were linked to drug arrests, but that they would only attempt to seize properties that had at least $50,000 inequity. Amazing. Wow. That's, that's when the light bulb went off, as Russ there, said it, word for word. Yeah, there you go. So, you know, in his case, the uh, the case eventually went before a federal judge who eventually ruled against the government and stopped the forfeiture, but only after he had already spent $100,000 in legal bills. So, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things where I think a lot of us feel like, oh, you know, that's never going to happen to me. But when you take the time to really look into it and see how prevalent it is, I mean, it really is a big concern that I think we should all protect ourselves against. 
You know, and it's also a procedure that penalizes people who live or do business in in rough areas. I mean, if you have a you know, if you have a store somewhere and it happens to be in a in a bad area, and and you're you're inevitably going to have you know, gangbangers and people walking across your property, maybe doing drug deals on your property. Yeah, every time that happens, you know that's a, a potential cause for uh, the cops to seize the property. Yeah, well, welcome to progressive America, right, where the honest people are prosecuted and uh, the bad doers or illegals are given everything. Yeah, well, for sure. All right, Mark. Well, that about wraps it up for today. Uh, hopefully, you've all enjoyed the information as much as I have. And for everybody on the call today, I want to make it clear that Mark would love to provide each of you with the opportunity to achieve three things, which are A, a means to protect your assets and your privacy, B, the opportunity to diversify your wealth, and C, but definitely not the least important, your freedom and opportunity. So if you would like to know more about what Mark calls the Lifeboat Strategy, his flagship book, please feel free to check it out at www.nesman.com. Mark, thanks for the great call tonight, and I hope that you all have a great evening. Always a pleasure, Paul. Take care. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.